This is the Speaking of Writers podcast. I'm Steve Richards. In First Principles, what America's founders learned from the Greeks and Romans and how they shaped our country. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and number one New York Times bestselling author Thomas E. Ricks offers a revelatory new look at the Founding Fathers, examining their educations, in particular their devotion to the ancient Greek and Roman classics. Ricks demonstrates how that influence would shape their ideals and the new American nation. Thomas E. Ricks covered the U.S. military for the Washington Post from 2000 through 2008 and was on the staff of the Wall Street Journal for 17 years before that. He reported on American military operations in Somalia, Haiti, Korea, Bosnia, Kosovo, Macedonia, Kuwait, Turkey, Afghanistan, and Iraq. A member of two Pulitzer Prize-winning teams, he is also the author of several books, including The Generals, The Gamble, Churchill and Orwell, and the number one New York Times bestseller, Fiasco, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. He wrote First Principles while a visiting fellow in history at Bowdoin College. Happy to have Thomas E. Ricks join me now here on Speaking of Writers. Thomas, welcome to this program. Thanks for having me. So what gave you the idea to write this book? It really uh, started the day after Donald Trump was elected president uh, in 2016. That Wednesday morning, I woke up and I thought, what happened last night? I don't understand this. I don't understand what's happening to the country. And I've been taught in college that when you don't understand something fundamentally, you go back to first principles. So I went downstairs and took down my battered old copy of Aristotle's Politics that I'd read in college and reread it in the context of Trump's election. And that started me on a four-year course of reading about the classics, reading Greek history, uh, Roman history. And that led me to the fact that this was the fundamental political vocabulary of the people who founded the country. The revolutionary generation grew up on Greek and Roman history and literature. That was where they got how they thought about the world. For them, the core political narrative in world history was the decline of the Roman Republic. That is, the Republic um, being taken over ultimately by Julius Caesar, who becomes a monarch. And for them, the question was, how can you have a republic doesn't have that fate? How can you avoid uh, coming out like Rome? And there weren't a lot of good answers. Uh, There weren't a lot of other examples to look at either. Most of world history, you had kings running things. So they look at the Roman Republic, and that becomes for them the model of what to do, but also the model of what to avoid. And these four founders, they focused on certain people. Um, Who did they focus on? For example, Washington. Yeah, they focused on different parts of Roman history. Uh, For Washington, the real model was Cato, who is not well-known today, but was very well-known in the 18th century. In fact, one of the most popular plays of the 18th century, one that Washington loved, was about Cato. Cato was a Roman politician who opposed the rise of Caesar, and his characteristics became the ones that everybody wanted to emulate. He was remote, just, prudent, frugal, and wise. And that's the model that Washington especially tried to take on. He, it was not a natural role for him. He was a volatile young man. He had a volcanic temper. And he spent a lot, long part of his life trying to learn how to control it. For John Adams, the model was Cicero, another Roman politician who, uh, with Cato, opposed the rise of Caesar. Uh, a very different sort of guy, a very voluble talkative orator, 
a good politician, uh, but also quite vain. And it's odd that Adams imitates both uh, Cicero's great patriotism, but also Cicero's uh, love of talking about himself. Jefferson is the oddity here. He succeeds Adams as president. Uh, interestingly, uh, like our time today, Adams is a one-term president, quite bitter about losing. The first guy turned out of office. And the transfer of power from Adams to Jefferson is kind of messy. But Jefferson becomes president. Jefferson is more Greek than Roman. Mm-hmm. He's very influenced by Epicurus, the Greek philosopher. And if you read the Declaration of Independence with Epicurus in mind, Epicurus uh, believes that the purpose of life is the pursuit of happiness. And happiness is very important in the Declaration of Independence. He's mentioned twice early on. And then finally, uh, along comes James Madison, a younger guy, younger generation, but incredibly important, I think underappreciated. And Madison's a little bit more distant from the classical world. He says, you know, you guys, a lot of the stuff you're talking about doesn't really work. Relying on the public spirit of people, uh, hoping that people will put the common good before their personal gains. And he says, you know, we need to rewrite the law of the land. And he spends a lot of time beating the drum. Let's, Let's write a constitution to replace this crazy article of confederation that governed the country in the 1780s. And then he leads the way at the Constitutional Convention. He leads the way in getting the new convention, the new constitution, ratified. Uh, And then in the 1790s, along with Thomas Jefferson, he basically invents the political party system for the United States. And he and Alexander Hamilton, kind of younger, more nationalist, not so oriented to state politics, they really lead the way uh, in the creation of the United States. We're chatting with Thomas Rex. His book is uh, First Principles, What America's Founders Learned from the Greeks and Romans and How They Shaped Our Country. George Washington had no university education. Adams went to Harvard, of course, Jefferson, William and Mary and uh, James Madison. At the time, it was called the College of New Jersey. Now, as we know it, it is Princeton. Tom, what was your research process like for this book? Uh, It was very different than I expected. And this was a pleasant surprise to me. A huge change in the last 10 years is that almost every word written in the uh, 18th century, printed, uh, or even people's letters, everything is now digitized and searchable. So I could go through this great website called Founders Online and say, how many times did all the founders refer to Spartacus, uh, a Roman slave who leads a slave rebellion? And I can tell you instantly, wow. These guys all knew Roman history. They all knew about Spartacus. But John Adams, the only one of the first four presidents who didn't own a slave, is the only one who ever mentions him. And that's instructive. Another thing is we were all taught in high school that John Locke, English philosopher, was really central to how the founders thought. Well, I could sit down and look at founders online and say, hey, they don't refer to Locke half as much as they refer to Montesquieu the French philosopher who basically invents the modern liberal democratic state of balance, of tolerance, of division of power, and so on. Uh, So I was able to come up with answers that previous historians couldn't simply because all this stuff wasn't digitally available. What amazed me is just all these pamphlets and letters and books are all searchable. And I, I tried to read the books that these guys read. In fact, at one point, to my surprise, I was reading a book that I knew was important to John Adams, and I was reading in Google Books online. And as I was t- turning to make some source notes, 
I looked in the front of the book. The copy I was reading, it actually belonged to John Adams. It was signed by him. And Google Books had copied it out of a library in Boston. We're chatting with Tom Ricks. Uh, his book is First Principles. Tom, you show us some new sides to these founding fathers. Give me one new side for each. Let's start with Washington. Sure. I think the amazing thing about Washington is that he becomes general of the U.S. Army, the first soldier in the U.S. Army in 1775. He's 43 years old at the time, which is pretty young for a general commanding an entire army. And he's able to change. And that's crucial because he goes into the Revolutionary War a pretty conventional officer, thinking pretty much like his, the British officers that he was fighting thought. Uh, he wanted to be an offensive uh, commander. He wanted to have these complex operations. And he realizes pretty soon he's not winning, you know, because it's hard to, when you've been defeated, it's pretty evident. And so then uh, he gets kicked out of Long Island, he gets kicked across Manhattan, he gets chased across New Jersey by the British. And he begins thinking and reflecting, and he has some young, smart people around him, such as Alexander Hamilton. And eventually he changes to a very different form of war. And he learns to use his militia very well. These are sort of the part-time soldiers. At first, he's disgusted by them. They're dirty, they're surly, they're not helpful, they're not disciplined. But he realizes that criticizing a soldier for not being what you need is like criticizing a hammer for not being a saw. Find out what the tool can do and use it. And that's what he does. He learns to use the militia. Don't try to send them into charges against British regulars who can chase them with bayonets, which is terrifying. Use them near their homes and fields and and woods and roads they know. Use them to bite away, to chew on the British as they're out looking for food. And that's where wars really can be won. Battles don't happen every day, but soldiers have to eat every day. And what they do is they turn to going after these British foraging parties and attacking British supply lines. And the British, after having kicked him out of New York, have a horrible six months in early 17. 77, where their army dwindles in the New York area from 34,000 to about 16,000, simply because of these everyday fights, these little skirmishes, and because of disease and desertion. And Washington realizes, I don't have to win big battles. All I have to do is keep my army alive, and eventually the British will get sick of this, and I will win. And that's kind of how he wins. Also, eventually... The French come in, and that's crucial because the French provide soldiers and money and guns and ships. And then Washington changes his approach at Yorktown. He fights a big battle and wins it. And that's because he has the French on his side, and he no longer has to run around um, doing these maneuvering and avoiding conflict. Thomas, you think John Adams has been overrated in recent years. Why? I really do. Um, I think John Adams has had this sort of balloon boomlet it begins with David McCullough's biography, and which is very nice, and it's really more a biography of a nice marriage between John Adams and Abigail Adams. But John Adams is not the cuddly teddy bear figure we saw portrayed by Paul Giamatti in that nice uh, HBO miniseries. John Adams is a brilliant man. He's an honest man. He's also a crank, and he's vain. He doesn't understand how the country is changing. His great achievement was getting the revolution going before the war begins. He sort of, there's a revolution in the minds of men, and he's a great orator. 
But as president, he's a disaster. He succeeds Washington, which is a hard act to follow. He comes in in 1796. And following Cicero, the Roman politician we were talking about, he really values stability. He also thinks that any criticism of the president is close to treason. And he's the president, and he starts throwing newspaper editors into jail. It really goes after them quite viciously. In New York, John Greenleaf is an editor. They're going to indict him for sedition, like treason. And he dies of smallpox, so they go legally after his wife. She She becomes ill, so then they go after the printer of the newspaper. Adams thinks this is the way to go, to shut down criticism. And he's fighting the emergence of politics led by Jefferson and Madison, the emergence of political parties. And then uh, he loses the election of 1800, a one-term president, quite bitter about it. The transition lasts forever because of problems with the Electoral College. Meantime, John Adams appoints a bunch of people to federal positions just as he's leaving office, a move that Jefferson deeply resents. And then uh, he declines to attend the inauguration of Jefferson. And it's kind of a moment that speaks to now. Uh, instead of going to Jefferson's inauguration in March 1801, Adams hops on the 4 a.m. coach to Baltimore and leaves town. Jefferson, to his credit, comes in. This is the first transfer of power to the opposition in American history. And some people say that's the real test of democracy. Not can you have an election, but can you have an election in which the opposition wins. And that's what happens in the, the presidential election of 1800. Jefferson comes in and he says two crucial things in his first inaugural address. And I think his first inaugural is probably the most important document he produced after the Declaration of Independence. In the first inaugural address, he says, number one, every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. That is to say, just because somebody opposes you doesn't mean they're a bad person. And the second thing he says is, I am not going to put the opposition in jail. I think they're wrong. Let them speak to the American people. And if they're wrong, the American people eventually will see that. And that's crucial. He sets the new tone for how we're going to run politics in this country. And we're going to have effectively a loyal opposition, people who oppose me without me saying they're opposing the whole country, the whole government. Tom, I'm sure you get asked this question often. What would Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison have thought of today's United States? I think uh, three things. Number one, they would be really pleased that the country has lasted as long as it has. And remember, Washington, in his first inaugural address, refers to America as an experiment. And I was struck the other day that Barack Obama, talking about the country, referred to it as an experiment. So the republic has lasted. The second thing is I think they'd be deeply embarrassed by what a mess they made of slavery. They wrote slavery into the American Constitution, into the fundamental law of the land. And that leads, not a years later, to a giant civil war that is incredibly bloody bloody and difficult for the country. The third thing is, looking at the country now, they would be appalled by the role that money plays in our politics. Money is always important in politics, but money has never dominated American politics like it does now. Campaign finance, campaign donations for corporations. To them, that would be the essence of, of corruption. They would say, I think, most of them would say, you have let the dollar become more important than the vote, and you are in danger of losing your democracy and becoming an oligarchy, that is, a country ruled by the rich. 
He's number one New York Times bestselling author Thomas E. Ricks. The book is First Principles, What America's Founders Learned from the Greeks and Romans and How That Shaped Our Country. Thomas, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. And this is Speaking of Writers.